Well, good morning and welcome back to a great Sunday at Sarah Mesa Christian Fellowship. And we're continuing to study the book of 1 Timothy. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, we want to give you one this morning. We have a few Bibles in the back. One of our leaders will hand one to you if you need a Bible. Or there's actually one in your pew, but we'd like to give you one if you're a guest visiting and you do not have one. Also, the, the notes should be in your bulletin. If you have, don't have notes, raise your hand and, and an usher or greeter will hand you a note. I need some notes up here. While we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and studying the qualifications of what it means, their characteristics of spiritual leadership. And leadership comes in many ways. And in the business world, usually it's the guy that makes the most money is the one that, in the business world, Bill Gates or uh, it could be a, a movie producer. And if he's making a lot of money, people want to follow that person. And whoever has the so-called cer certain gifts in and, and the, the speaking world or leaders of countries, people seem to gravitate to those people. But in following Christ, it is a whole new set of rules. And in spiritual leadership, God requires that we look to the Bible to find out what it really means to be a leader for God. Now, this book in 1 Timothy, it was written, Paul was writing to a young pastor, Timothy, on how to lead a church there in the city of Ephesus. Now, in the, in the days of those days, in Timothy and Paul, there was a lot of confusion in that city because people were following sorcery and witchcraft and, and foreign gods and, and false gods and stone gods, and, and, and people were marketing these, these gods. And you'd go to the farmer's market, and there would be all these different types of little images. And, and he'll say, I'll take one of these, and I'll take a Diana goddess, and I'll take one of these Zeus goddesses, and, and I want to make sure I cover all the bases. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody that worships a foreign god but is a really really strange thing i was in indonesia in jakarta indonesia when i was in college and and we went to visit uh, one of the students houses and he opened up his closet and there were a whole closet full of little uh, shrines uh, little gods and candles and and there must have been about a hundred little little god figures in there and, and I said, what are these? And he says, well, these are all the gods that I worship, and I come here every day and I pray to these gods so that he will grant me whatever I pray for. And, and I was really, uh, to me, it was like, I, it didn't, it was so, uh, a very bizarre image and a very scary thing because here it was somebody that didn't have the truth, that you can search all the world and, and pray to every god in the world, but and they're all false gods because you're not praying to the true God if you're not praying to Jesus Christ. If you're not coming to Jesus Christ, it is not the real God. And we told him, all the college students, we told him about our faith. And, but he was, you know, we wanted to honor him. This is our, his house. But we let him know about our faith in Jesus Christ. What you have today as a church is a responsibility that there's tons of foreign ideas out there but always stick to the truth and present the gospel of Jesus and what you believe. And that's the characteristics of spiritual leadership. So the first application here 
in spiritual leadership is to live above reproach. Live above re reproach. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, read it with me, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Now, here, is, the word for bishop is the word episkopos, which is really many, several terms in the Bible. You have presbyteros, episkopos, you have diakonos, and you have elder, and pastor, teacher, various names, all interchangeable for those who oversee the church. And depending on 1 Timothy or, or in, uh, other passages of Scripture, or in Titus, it'll, it'll have the various names. But here is saying the word episkopos, and he says the guy that is leading the church should be blameless. Now, they say, wait a minute, Pastor Louie, that means you can't have anything wrong in your life. You have to be perfect. Okay, I'll, let me exit stage left or stage right. I'll go over by this door here. Just, that's just for sound effects. I mean, if I had to be blameless, then there wouldn't be really nobody could be preaching. I mean, if you had to be completely perfect. But what does the word blameless mean? And literally, the word blameless, it comes from the Greek word anapilemtos. Say that with me. Anapilemtos. Just a big Greek word for not open to censure or irreproachable. Now, in the political word, world, there are politicians who read about, he's being censured. Senator so-and-so is being censured for having taken this money, and, and, you know, and he's taken money that was inappropriate, and he's put it aside for himself. He's been censured. Now, or irreproachable. That means, you can't, that means he cannot be a part of the main group. What it means in the Christian world is that this word here not only applies to pastors, but it applies to all of us as believers. When we're reading these scriptures, don't think that, well, that's just talking to the guy that's preaching, that he needs to be blameless. Always write down, this applies to me that I need to be right on with God, somebody that is living a life that is measuring up to the standard that Jesus Christ has called me to. Now, when you think of the Bible, who can really be blameless except for Jesus himself? He was the only one that was perfect. He was the only man in the whole world who lived who was without sin. He was the only one who was without sin, Jesus Christ. And that's why when we read on with Scripture here in, in Job, you read about that there was somebody that was blameless. In Job 1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. These are great characteristics. If you want to be considered blameless, fear God and shun evil. This is what Job was. And what happened with Job is that here he is this righteous man living for God, but wonderful family. All of a sudden, uh, there's this huge calamity, this, this hurricane, this tornado that this, this, this sweeps through his, his farmland and wipes out all of his animals, all of his, all of his livestock. Satan was the one that set it up and said, goes before God and says, Hey, God, how come you have this guy, Job, down there that you just keep blessing? 
And the only reason why he's be, you're blessing him is because, you know, he's just doing all these good things. What, what, what if Job was, all of a sudden, you took away everything away from him? I bet you he wouldn't start, would keep following you. And that's why God did that. It was really a test, the test, the righteousness of Job, that even though everything was taken away from him, he still served God, feared God, and shunned evil. Do you ever think about that, what you would do in your life? Your house burns down. You lose your job. Some of you are going through those things right now. You're, you're just going through a tough time where everything seems to be lost. You, you've lost everything. And what do you have? What's, what's left? This is the real test of whether you're going to continue to follow God or move away from God. And that's a tough battle because a lot of times people will say, well, God isn't there for me, therefore I'm not going to be there for God. But that's not what Job did. God said, Job said, man, even though he slay me, I will keep my hope in him. That's, a, that's an incredible verse in the book of Job, that even though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job lost all of his children. His children were taken away from him. They were killed. Then God allowed for the enemy, for Satan to cause sickness to fall upon Job, and his body was covered with boils, and it was just like pus was oozing out of his body, and it was just like completely just sick, and he was sitting on top of an ash heap, just lost everything, all his property, his family. His wife comes up to him and says, Job, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? I mean, you've had it, man. You just, you're at the end of your rope. Go ahead and die. Job's friends came up to him and said, Job, three guys said, you really must have done something wrong for God to do this to you. What is it that you have done? Go ahead and confess your sins right now. You, you just lived a terrible life. You've done something to deserve all this because nobody would have all this calamity fall upon him unless he has really done something bad. But you know what? The Bible said Job is blameless because he continued to follow God. He shunned evil and he feared God. Will you today, and this is what the Bible is asking you, will you today shun evil and follow God so that you will be blameless in the eyes of God in order to bring the message of God to those who are without hope? That's what Job did. And that's why, how do you become blameless? How do you become like a Job? Well, look what the Bible says right here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, 12, 14, and 16. Read it with me. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Let's stop right there. Let's say that again. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Stop right there. The reason why it's hard to go past that verse is because I think we're struggling with this part right here. This is an area that, wait a minute, Pastor, you mean I can't complain anymore? I can't argue with anybody anymore that, that if I want to be a blameless person that i got to stop complaining? <sighs> Wait a minute. This is really a big, big thing and I think this is a major issue in all of our lives. We are born to complain. We are born to gripe. We are born to whine and, and say how come me and why not me and, and give me more. And I mean, we are like little children, right? And then God is saying, wait a minute, I want you to be a blameless, wholesome representative of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to stop complaining, and I want you to stop arguing and disputing. That's why it says here, that you may be calm, blameless, and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among who you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Will you today commit to say, I will work at not complaining? Will you say that with me? I will work at not complaining. I think we've got to do that again. I will work at not complaining. We complain about everything. We complain about, well, my food is too cold. My food is too hot. Or my, I don't have enough uh, gas. I, I'm complaining. I don't make enough money. I'm complaining because I just my taxes are too high. I'm complaining because somebody didn't give me what I expected them to give me. You know what? God is saying, I want you to bring all your gripes to me first. Bring all your gripes to me. And this is a real important thing. Before you complain, before you argue about anything, will you sleep on it? Before you open your mouth, will you say, you know what? I'm not going to complain today. If I'm going to complain, let me complain tomorrow, but today I'm just going to pray about it. I'm going to just not dispute with anybody. Today I'm going to pray. Will you pray before you even consider complaining? And watch what God does the next day. You watch how resolution will come, peace will come to your heart, and even if somebody has not given you what you think you deserve, you're going to all of a sudden say, that's okay. I've already talked to God about it, and he said it's okay. That's what it says right here, that you may become blameless and harmless children without fault. The reason why we don't get what we want is because we ask, the Bible says in James, amiss. We ask for our own pleasures. We ask for, to satisfy our own lusts. And God is saying, that's why you're, you don't have anything. Because you're only asking for yourself. The best way to stop complaining is when you say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to start serving others. And I'm going to start giving to them. And even if they don't give back, I'm going to give. And I'm going to serve. And I'm going to devote my life to giving. Will you commit to giving and serving? And then watch what God does regarding the complaining factor in your life. And then it says, holding fast the word of life. That means when you hold fast, that means living by the word of God. Living by the Bible, the standards of the word of God. You're going to find yourself to be a blameless person. Because nobody that lives by the word of God can be accused of living against God. And that's what it's talking about here. So that's why the next application is be an example of purity. Be an example of purity. And this is what's found in the next verse. 1 Timothy 3, 2, read it with me. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, I don't know too many of you here that brought two wives to church this morning. Anybody got two wives here? Let me, why don't you go ahead and stand up? You're probably not going to stand up. Um, what does it mean to be, what does the Bible mean when it says to be a husband of one wife? I mean, I think that kind of in our culture, that's kind of a, like a, a given, right? I mean, I would be tough for me to have two wives. I don't think you could say, here I come with my wife, Yvonne, and oh, by the way, I have a new wife today. Her name is, uh, uh, I don't know. 
Give me a name, somebody. <laughs> Rapunzel or what? Anyway, I got two wives in my hand. Now, wife on the left is going to say, wait a minute, Louie, I didn't agree to this when we went to the altar. That You said that having to hold, be faithful and all this. Now, why do we have this lady in here? It's not going to work. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying is that you're not going to bring your two wives to church. What he was talking about in that day, in that generation, the Greeks actually had several wives. They would have, this is the wife that's going to bear my children. This is the one that's going to bear my children. This is the wife, the mistress, the one that I actually get the fool around with. This is what the Greeks thought, taught. And, and this is the wife over here for whatever, a, a concubine and all sorts of issues in the, in the days of the Greeks. And that was okay in Greek culture. Greek culture was saying, this is what you can do according to our standards. But the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, train your people that you're not going to live this standard the way the Greeks are doing it. You're going to live by the Word of God. And the Word of God says you can only have one wife. Do you know why God says this? You know what the whole purpose is? And the whole purpose revolves around God. That God only wants you because marriage is a symbol of his relationship with you. That God only wants you to be devoted to him. Not to any other gods, not to any other things in your life. God is saying, I want my people to be devoted to me and not to other issues in their life and other things that bring them pleasure. I want to be the sole mate of you in the relationship that we have and not without any interruption. Now, the husband of one wife, and that's the characteristic of the pastor, but it's also the characteristic of you as a believer in Jesus Christ that God is saying, I want you to have only eyes for me. Now, the word here for husband of one wife, literally in the Greek, it means be a one-woman kind of man. To be a one-woman kind of man. That means if you're going to be a preacher, you better just keep this one wife and keep your eyes on her only. Now, to be a one-woman kind of man means that you're going to be faithful only to this one woman. You're going to be dedicated to her. You're going to minister to her. But that is the role of the pastor and the church. That pastor be a one-woman kind of man, but pastor also be a one church serving this congregation and being committed to this congregation just as Christ loved the church, pastor also loved your church. And, and remember in seminary, the two things they taught us this is something that the Word of God teaches, but they kept stressing, is love your sheep. You're a shepherd. Love your sheep. Always feed your sheep. Always nurture your sheep. But these, this application is, doesn't just go to the pastor. It's also for you because you are shepherds. You are also overseers of people in your lives. And as overseers, we are to be one focused on nurturing those who are around us. So be a one-woman kind of man, and that's a, that's a challenge for in our, even in our culture today. But what God is saying is that I want faithful men to serve me, and I want faithful men to be focused on the Word of God, and as you're loving God, you're going to be focused on that one woman, your wife.
Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, verse 1 and 2, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay, wait a minute. It's saying, be a one-woman kind of man, but don't touch her. No, that's not what it's saying. Here, the Corinthian church, this church in Corinth, this Greek culture, was saying, hey, what do we do about sexual relationships? Uh, this issue of sex keeps coming up in our, in our culture 2,000 years ago. Well, you know what? It still keeps coming up today, right? This issue of sex is still an issue today. And that's why Paul says, now, you guys wrote to me about this issue about sex. What do you do about uh, men and women? And Paul says, well, hey, it's a good thing for men not to touch women. That's a good thing. Don't get in the habit of touching women. It is not a good practice. And in fact, in our church, I love to say that we have a hugging church, and I, and I hug women. I try to give them a side hug, and that's something that's really important is that we don't want to be a church where, hey, listen, things are getting out of hand. But always be considerate. Men, you as guys, be a man of God and treat women as a sister. That's what the Bible teaches and that's why it says, nevertheless, because of immorality, sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So, touching is okay within marriage. Outside of marriage, it gets really, it's just really out of hand. Be very cautious, men, in our church. And I, and I don't see any abuse in this area, but I am always bringing this issue up because it comes up in the Bible. We live in a very sexually perverted culture. We live in a, sexu a sexual culture where sex is displayed every day. You see it everywhere you go. We're being bombarded. Guys, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're checking out the, uh, uh, the grocery line and all the, the magazine articles that are in front of you. It could be on the internet. Men, guard yourself against sexual contamination by getting, getting misguided and unfocused on God. This is a crucial area in the church today, and it's something that I really want to stress to our men, and you guys here. Have pure hearts when you're working with other women, being very considerate of them, thinking this woman is like a sister, and I need to treat her like a sister not as a sexual object. And it's a tough thing because we're being taught as men by our society to, you know, go ahead and do what you want. Paul is saying it is not good for a touch of woman, for a man to touch a woman. Now, that doesn't mean that Pastor Louis is not going to hug you ladies. I, I'm, I, just, I love you, and I love you as sisters and, and daughters. But there is a very cautious side to that, and I really want you guys to know that this is really important in our church, that we always treat the women as sisters and daughters and as moms, not as sexual objects. Look at this guy who really failed, King David. Here is a guy that was, had a heart after God. I mean, King David, I love King David. King David is somebody that was just, man, I want to be like this guy with a heart after God. But something happened to King David, and it's illustrated here in, King, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says that it happened in the spring of the year, the springtime, right? Flowers are coming up, 
birds are flying, bees are everywhere. It's just, just romantic time of the year. But you know what? It says at that time when the kings go out to do battle, and here's all the kings going out to do battle. It's, it's springtime. In fact, that's when wars usually start in springtime because the ground has dried. That's why they can carry their cannons and they can carry their... Uh, in springtime, you can uh, operate the, the, the uh, Amtraks and all the, uh, the tanks. They won't get stuck in the mud. Hitler, in fact, when he was going after uh, in Moscow, just... He got bogged down in the mud because he, he launched his Operation Barbarossa in springtime when the ground was dry and hard, but then all of a sudden it started raining in the, and, and snowing in the wintertime, and it defeated him. David says, at that time when kings go to battle, King David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They all went out to battle, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. All the kings are doing battle. All the kings are doing what they're supposed to do, fight their enemies. But what did David do? He hung out in Jerusalem. And there was a motive for that. The next verse says that while David was out on his porch, up on the second balcony there, he saw Bathsheba taking her bath. She was out there naked, out up in the second story, just... Uh, out exposed and just taking a bath, and David is out there watching her. Now, David is a man after God's own heart. He is somebody that has been following God. But all of a sudden, and it's really abrupt here in Scripture, he says, but David stayed in Jerusalem. He saw a woman up on the roof, her roof. And there's the neighbors, you know, there's that woman over there, and she's taking her bath, but David is watching and David sends for her. He tells one of the servants, "Go, who is that woman? Go bring her to my palace. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was out doing battle. And he has relations with Bathsheba. They have a child out of wedlock. The failure of King David was here a failure that could happen to any man in our church. And guys, and this is what we're so, and that's why I'm stressing this, and that's why Scripture is stressing this. Paul was telling Timothy, Timothy, teach your men about spiritual purity. Keep your eyes focused. Be a one-woman kind of man. If you're married, be devoted to that woman. Don't get your eyes on other women. It'll destroy you. It'll ruin your reputation, the reputation of what your leadership is, it will destroy you as a man. King David was never the same after this. Bathsheba was having a, had her child and Nathan the prophet came up to King David and said King, there's been a, an injustice in our kingdom and, and he tells the story of a rich man who had thousands and thousands of sheep and very wealthy. And then he tells the story of how there was a, a very poor shepherd who had one little ewe lamb and he loved this little ewe lamb and he, and he took care of this little ewe lamb and he, and he nurtured it and, and, and just every day was just watching over it. But then that rich guy that had thousands of sheep went and stole that little ewe lamb and, 
and he slaughtered it for himself and he ate and he served it to his friends and he and and David was so outraged and he said that man should die that man should pay a fourfold whatever he has done that that man just it's a terrible thing what he has done and Nathan the prophet said David you are the man you took from Uriah the Hittite his only wife for yourself and here you are this rich king you are the man and David repented he said I have sinned against God and man I have I am a terrible person for what I have done because he had been caught in his sin guys we live in a society where you're going to be tempted every single day with sexual immorality God is saying I need blameless men to stand up for Christ and to say, I'm not going to touch women. I'm not going to get involved with any woman except for my wife. And then that's my wife is going to be, be a one-woman kind of man and be faithful to her. If you do that, you're going to be succeeding in that blameless category. You won't have anybody pointing the finger at you and, and accusing you. You need to stand right with God. And that's what Scripture is saying here. David took his eyes off God. A man whose heart was after God... He took his eyes off God. And that's why 1 Timothy 4, 11, 12 says, And these things I command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, Timothy, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Be an example to the flock. Will you men commit to being pure for Jesus Christ? Will you shun whatever is evil? Would you flee? As and I love the story of Joseph, who was in the was there in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife grabbed him and said, "Sleep with me." And he said, "How can I do this thing and, and do this disgusting thing to defame my my master, Potiphar? It would be a sin against him and against God." What God is calling you to do, men, is saying, "I'm going to be." A blameless man of God. I'm not going to touch women. I'm not going to. Only in the and be it doing. You can do it in a sisterly way, in a motherly way, in a, uh, but not in a sexual way. Next passage. Next application. Be alert. I think in yours it might say. Be. What does your note say? Be, and your notes has got something else though. <laughs> keep, your on keep your head on straight. Keep your head on straight. Be alert. Keep your head on straight. Be alert. Keep your head on straight. First Timothy three two says a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober minded of good behavior, hospital, able to teach. Look at the two words, vigilant and sober-minded. And that word literally is, is the nephala, say nephilias, say nephilias. There you go. It means sober and alert. Vigilant, sober and alert. Always be watching out. Always be on your guard. Always be looking for what God is able to teach you and not... Because the enemy is there to destroy you as men. This is what Timothy is getting instructions from Paul. Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, 
be, be on the alert. Keep your head on straight. Don't get mixed up with anything that's going to be causing you to be considered to be blameful. And that's why he says in 3.3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, uh, quarrelsome not covetous. And the word for gentle is epikas, say epikas, epikas, patient, fair, and mild. Epikas, patient, fair, and mild. If you're going to be in spiritual leadership, you need to be patient with people. We all have to work at that. I mean, that is something you do every day. Every single day, your patience is being tested. And spiritual leadership is being tested every single day. Like the story of the man who was running for the boat, and he was going to miss his boat, and, and the barge was pulling out of the dock, and he had his suitcases with him, and he, and he saw it. He says, man, it, it, it just only this far away from the dock, and if he just run fast enough, and, and he jumped made it onto the boat in the last second his suitcases went flying over on the, on the barge it closed went flying out and suitcases opened up and 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 the captain was just so astonished and people on board just started applauding and they said we've never seen anybody jump that far before it was like the most incredible leap of, of i mean it was like a michael jordan type of leap you were flying through the air it was spectacular the captain said it was incredible, but if you would have just waited two more seconds, we would have come into the dock and landed. The guy was so, if he would have just been a little more patient, he would have said, wait a minute, the boat's coming in instead of going out. Do you ever find that in your life that you blow up and everything? You've said, wait a minute, oh, if I would have just been a little patient, I could have seen the whole story differently, or I would have examined it differently. Spiritual leadership is saying, God wants you to be patient in the sense that a pay case is that you need to be fair and mild in your approach to all things. That's what God is saying. Gentle Timothy, a pay case. And then he says, the reason why it says be patient with everything, everyone, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, 14. Three things, four things here. Remember how patient God has been with you. And that's what it says in Romans 5, 5 Romans 15, 7. Remember how God was patient with you. And then learn by listening. Too often, we talk more than we listen, right? And even when we're listening, we're not really listening. We're only preparing for what we're going to say. Hope this guy finishes quick so that I can say what I want to say. God is saying, will you really listen to what somebody is saying? I'm working on this myself. God is saying, listen, be patient with people. And then make allowances for each other. Ephesians 4, 2. Make allowances, forgiving each other. And that if somebody breaks something or somebody does something that wasn't exactly what, the way you like, say, hey, you know what? Okay, I do the same thing. I spill the milk too. Don't worry about it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be all right. And treat others the way you want to be treated. Philippians 4, 2, 4, and 5. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. That's what it says in, that Jesus regarded others as being more important than himself. So then also demonstrate Christ-like leadership. Demonstrate Christ-like leadership. And that's what it says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
And the word for rules is the word proistemi. Say proistemi. It means to set over, to superintend, and to protect. And that's what a pastor does. He superintends, he protects, he's set over. He's, he's overseeing the church of God. And that's what God is saying for you, is that you are a part of this church in leadership to also be co-protectors and co-superintendents of this congregation. So one who rules over his own house well with his children in submission. Now, a lot of times you always hear, well, it's the pastor's kids that are out of hand, or it's the missionary kids that are out of hand. Those kids are the worst. They get away with murder. They're, look at, they're running around the church, and they're, they're man, those kids are going to grow up to be hoodlums. They, look at the way they're, why doesn't that pastor bring them under control? Well, it's, uh, it, I think this applies to all of us, and that raising kids is not an easy job. Raising kids it takes a lot of work, and we're all working at it. In the family of God, we're here as a family to, to we have lots. I, I'm thankful that we have all these kids in our church, and praise God, and, 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 they, and they need guidance. You are the parents. You are, we're a family here, and, and love the children, and nurture them, and, and uh, speak lovingly to them, and, 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 and give them a handshake, and embrace them. This is a part of being a family of God. Now, all of us are raising children as children come into this church we are the parents and we are the the ones that are guiding them so it's not just applying to your house but it's applying to the house of god that we have a big family here and we're all responsible to always protect our children to superintend them and keep a watch over them and that's why it's first timothy 3 6 says and not a novice don't let this pastor be a novice and you guy lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And the word for novice is neophytus. We get neophytes. Say neophytus. It just means a, a new guy, a new convert, a newly planted person. And that the pastor should not be a guy that just became a Christian. And just like the music is saying, if, that's like when they, pastor, you're finished, you're going overtime. <laughs> On... Uh, what, what show do they have that on? Uh, name that tune. Academy Awards. Yeah, there you go. The novice. And see, you, I, we, we need to have somebody that has a little bit of background, a little bit of seasoning to be a pastor. And that's, that's, a, that's a real important part. I, I've been in ministry since 1982. I've been serving in ministry. And, and I... You probably wouldn't have wanted me back in 1982 to be your pastor. It takes a long time, and, I, and even now, I'm still always working at it. I'm always reading how I can be a better pastor. I'm always reading how I can be a better preacher, and, 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 and it's something that you're always working at your whole life. As ministers, and you here, as the family of God, you're always going to be learning about how to be a better example of Christ. But the Word of God is saying is that anybody that aspires to be a pastor, you can't be a new guy. You can't be that just a brand new Christian. Learn, get some experience, and find out what it means to be, just do some suffering out there. Do some, do some uh, real footwork and see what it's like by serving and let God do the rest. So novice. And 1 Timothy 3, 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach 
and snare of the devil. And the word for good testimony is word martyria, martyria. It just means a witness, a report. Have a good report. Have a good witness. Oh, yeah, that pastor, man, he's all right. I've, uh, he's okay. I've, I've seen him in operation even when he's not behind the pulpit. You have a good reputation with your creditors. You have a good reputation with those who are in the community. It's a very important thing, a good testimony, who are those who are outside the church. We are called to the greatest ministry in the world, the ministry of Jesus Christ. You are the ministers. You are the examples of Christ. And as we're working together and as our church grows, we're going to find out that we're going to need to be more of us serving in leadership. And more of us, this, this morning we had three classes just on leadership training, uh, usher and counselor training. We had a, a Sunday school teacher training. We had a, uh, uh, what's the other class training we had? Teacher training. Uh, but the main thing is that you are called to be servants of the living God. And Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy. Timothy, God has called you to do a great work. And the greatest thing you can do by doing a great work is to be a blameless man of God. That means shunning all that is evil and live for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you've called us to, this incredible work, this incredible ministry the gospel of Jesus Christ, how powerful it is. And Lord, it is a tough thing to be called to be blameless. Louis Juarez, be blameless. I look at those words and I say, how can I be blameless? How can I be a person that is without blame? But yet in Christ, it is possible. It is possible to stand and say, yes, I'm not a perfect man, but I will follow the Lord Jesus, and Jesus, you will make me blameless. This morning, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to be a blameless man of God, a woman of God, will you shun evil? Will you listen to the commands of God and say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you? It's a tall call, but God is saying, yes, you can. Will you turn away from your wicked ways? Will you put me first? Be a one-woman one kind of man. Discard the sexual immorality that is around you and say, I'm going to be a light and not be a part of those things that are so prevalent in this culture. Yes, Jesus, help me. I commit to this, to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, to have eyes only for you. Help me, Lord, because I am weak, but you are strong. And Jesus, I invite you to my life to be my Lord and my Savior, my God, to forgive me of my sins. I believe that you did die on the cross, that you were buried, and that you rose again on the third day. And now I want to commit my life to this message, to this truth. There's nothing else in the world. I can only imagine that what heaven will be like. And I just, it's hard to even imagine. But Lord, because you have called us to this greater calling and time is running short, I will step up to be a leader for God, 
a leader for the cause of Christ. And so, Lord, count me in. Count me in as a part of your service. I enlist today and help me to renew this enlistment. In Jesus' name, amen.